For the winter 2019 issue of the Dublin Review, we asked Irish writers to reflect on their relationships with the people, culture and geography of England. At our second annual Conversations event, which took place on the 4th of December 2019, editor Brendan Barrington was joined by three of the essayists from the winter issue, Patrick Frayne, Sinead Gleeson and Selina Guinness. Conversations 2019 began with a reading by Patrick Frayne. I once had a teacher known as the Master. Maybe all village schoolmasters go by that name. I don't know. One way or another, he saw himself as a Patrick Pierce-style pedagogue who loved his students and his students loved him. He demonstrated this great love by weeping conspicuously when addressing a crowd on parents' evening. This was taken by the parents as evidence of his great passion for the job and not, as was obvious to his students, as evidence that he was unhinged. He was an innovator who devised special stress positions to use when corporal punishment was outlawed and who terrified us with how much he loved Ireland. He really loved Ireland. He would take us for nature walks in the countryside where he'd sit us down in the shade of a blackthorn tree and tell us about atrocities committed by the English against the Irish and then the atrocities committed by the Irish against the English in return. The latter, he explained, were completely justified. For example, when a bunch of peasants ransacked the home of some English landowners, then buried them to their neck in gravel and left them to die. That was just fine, he said. He'd get really emotional about these righteous atrocities. Compared with the master, I don't think I loved Ireland. I kind of just lived there. The legacy of all those history class atrocities was being played out 100 miles up the road. But like most children in the south, it didn't touch me. I'm ashamed to say that bombs in Belfast seemed as distant to me as those in Beirut or Afghanistan. My dad was an officer in the Irish army, but a few stints on the border notwithstanding, he seemed to have little to do with it. My neighbours had very little to do with it, although I learned years later that one friend's rural family home had been a sort of IRA safe house. It's true that over the years I'd have a few armchair Republican friends who hung pictures of hunger strikers on the wall and could wax lyrical about how they'd like to die for Ireland. But in Kildare of my childhood, you were more likely to die for staring at someone funny than for Ireland. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I suppose I, you know, one of the things I should have mentioned um, uh, when explaining why, why I commissioned this, this feature and, and um, why we're having this conversation this evening is that I did not grow up here. I grew up in New York. And so one of the things I'm really curious about is, is, is Irish education and what it leaves you with. Um, and you go on in your piece, Patrick, uh, to write about um, all of the very important English and British influences on you in your childhood. So on the one hand, you were, you were getting this stuff from your teacher. On the other hand, you were listening to music, reading books, um, so much of the culture of your childhood yeah. came, from, um, came from England or the UK, and, and uh, Sinead, you wrote about much the same phenomenon. Um, at the time, and obviously you've written about your schoolmaster in a, in a somewhat comic tone, um, how seriously did you take him? There was this kind of sense when I was growing up, I think it's a common Irish, Southern Irish phenomenon, that there was a kind of official Ireland... Um, and that kind of damaged a lot of stuff for me when I was growing up, stuff that I now think is brilliant, like traditional music and the Irish language, and because you just associated it with school. And there was this kind of narrative on the one hand that we'd been kind of hard done by, and there was this kind of post-colonial funk over the country. 
And it was coupled with the kind of really low cultural esteem that I think a lot of people felt embarrassed about being Irish. Like the biggest compliment, I remember even in my kind of teens and 20s, the biggest compliment you could get was somebody would go, this is like something you might get in Paris or London. <laughs> like there was this just general sense that Ireland was a bit crap. And the, and, and the kind of sense I got from it, because everything I, I read would have been like the stuff that really shaped me when I was a kid were like books by Richmond Crampton and um, Edith Blyton. And it was getting this kind of steady diet of kind of quality child literature. And then you kind of hit your teens and all the count, the really interesting counterculture was coming from England or America, but loads of it was from England. Like the stuff that, like the, the sense of humor I loved was like, Monty Python or Douglas Adams books or Sue Townsend books um, or Smash It's magazine. So you were kind of getting this kind of steady sense that all of the fun, interesting stuff is happening somewhere else. And a lot of it was happening in the place that in school we were told shafted us. So you, I don't think I resolved that in my head to like, few minutes ago. <laughs> like, it's like, it's a really, you end up with this really fractured sense of Irish identity. And, and I think there was a particular uh, middle class Irish shame about being Irish. Like this sense that if stuff was a little too Irish, it was kind of dodgy and peasant-like, um, which again let, led us, or led me, to kind of throw loads of stuff out with the bathwater. You know, like we, I don't think I even went into the church in this, but Sure. I mean, like, we did replace one set of bastards with another. Yeah. And does that ring any bells for you, Sinead, um, the, the, the sort of stew that Patrick describes there? You, you grew up in Dublin, is that right? Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I, I, grew, I grew up in Tala. I lived in Tala until I was 10. And I, when I eventually figured out and got to secondary and you're made to do that horrifying book that I now have reappraised and reevaluated massively, which was Peg, which everybody hated and everybody graffitied and made rude words out of the P-E-I-G on the front. Um, but, you know, now I realise now that she was a, a, a folklorist, a storyteller, um, you know, not unlike what Nan Shepherd was doing in Scotland and writing about mountains. But everybody in school hated her because the terrible way for a long time that the Irish language was taught. And it, again, maybe without even knowing it, because we hadn't really got into history at that point in school, but we you learned about the scorning and Ireland being the badge of poverty and you couldn't get a job in the civil service if you didn't speak English, and literally having the language beaten out of you. And the idea that there was a lot of shame around the Irish language, when there is, in fact, as we know now, it's, it's part of being a nation, is having a language of your own and an expression and articulation of your own. So when I was growing up again, like Patrick, I, I, a lot of my friends, when I went to college, who came from down the country, were like, we only had two channels, so we had four but it was all, all the TV that I consumed when I was young was, yeah, I was watching Anything Goes and Bosco, but I was also, you know, it was Saturday Superstore and Swap Shop and Wurzel Gummidge, which they're bringing back with Mackenzie Crook, I hear. Um, <laughs> very excited. Um, except for the scary twisty head bit, which used to freak me out. But I also, all, you're, you're drip-fed a lot of, even if you didn't go to England, and we know we didn't have, this is all pre-cheap flights and pre-Ryanair yeah. and EasyJet and all those things, and you maybe went to England only because immigration because you had family members who lived there and the only times that which is where my piece starts I we only went to England because it was somebody's wedding or you were going to visit your auntie or somebody who left and we all know that loads of people did leave this country because 
maybe they were pregnant and they didn't want to be. Maybe they wanted to have an abortion. Maybe they were poor. Maybe they went to build the roads and, you know, thoroughfares of England and work in all those terrible jobs. So the people always left, I think, for lots of reasons to get away from what we thought was a very culturally shameful, backward kind of place. And even the, I remember when I read Dubliners, is that for years, anybody, when anybody was emigrating, including when my own brother went to Australia, I quoted that line from A Little Cloud where Gallagher says, there's no, there's no doubt about it, if you wanted to make something of yourself, you had to get out of Ireland. And I think he might have even said Dublin, but I think he says mm -hmm. Ireland. And that's how I felt. I couldn't wait to get away. And I talk a bit about that as well. I, I, I wanted to get out. I, the, the, word, the world felt elsewhere, and Ireland felt backward and religious and archaic to me. And the Irish language, sadly, which I don't feel the same way about now, yeah. my, my children go to a Braille school. And I, and I wish I'd been taught through, I think all of our fluency would be better if we'd been taught that way. But I, lots of things I felt were a bit Irish and tacky and a bit diddly-eye. Um, I don't feel that way about them anymore. I feel much more proud of that kind yeah. of Irishness. And I think maybe part of what we've inherited is any culture that has been oppressed or colonised carries a certain amount of, of, of shame and has been used to being talked down to. And I think it's, it's Susan McKay's piece in this where she meets a girl in Donegal when she's a child who asks her about, I think where she's from, and she says, what? And the girl in a posh, she calls it a silvery English accent, mm -hmm. says her, don't say what, say pardon. Um, and again, so we, we know what it's like to be talked down to by people, and a lot of them in my life have happened to be English people um, who do talk down to a certain way. Not all, as we know, that's a big, expansive question, but it's, part, it's all tied into what's gone on between our two countries over many, many centuries. And Selena, did you have a, a schoolmaster who really loved Ireland and, and tried to whip you, whip you up with stories of the IRA flying columns, or was it a bit different in your Actually, you might be quite surprised to know that I did. Yeah. Um, yeah, in the extremely Protestant bastion of St. Columbus College, I was one of two people in the Honours Irish set taught by Martine Donnellan, who was a Christian brother, ex-Christian brother from Galway. Um, so, yes, I did. Um, and I suppose, however, I have the kind of voice that people might think is about to talk down to them. Um, and that is, I suppose, what I wrote about in my essay, which is my, um, unfortunately, RP accent, uh, which isn't really allowed to be Irish. Um, I'm allowed to be Irish in a very small... I, it sometimes feels like I'm allowed to be Irish on a very small ledge. Um, and that, for me, says a lot about the chasms on either side of me, one of which is Ireland and the other side of which is England. And my ledge feels like it kind of tapers out at the, at the point at which this conversation starts. <laughs> so I feel like, actually, my voice isn't allowed to talk about Ireland. Um, I feel that it would surprise people to know that I got a C in my honours Irish leaving it, um, that I am Church of Ireland. Um, and I feel that what is essentially a voice that in part is around privilege and educational advantage and a socioeconomic class, in Ireland it is not read in class terms, it's read in national terms. Yeah. So I'm happy to do the class critique. And for me... That is, when I teach Irish literature, what I'm trying to dissect and what I'm trying to unteach my students is their assumption that every Protestant comes from a big house. And so we go through and we say, well, okay, Sean O'Casey was a trade unionist and an orange man and a Protestant, and he lived in the slums of Dublin. And this is something that has been taken out of the Irish narrative. So it's that conflation of 
what I would call an underlying sectarian identity um, with um, a, a sense of kind of, uh, yeah, a sense of kind of cultural, a sense in which also the thing that annoys me is the Irish did no wrong. Mm. Um, I actually went, when I went to Argentina, I discovered that we had a colony, which is great. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, you know, that's, that's kind of taken out. Um, those the Irish Americans own slaves. <laughs> Sorry? Those are the Irish Americans. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, this, the, the, the kind of saintedness yeah. begins to unravel. Um, so yeah, I so that's my slightly um, nervous beginning. <laughs> One of the things that um, maybe the main thing that sort of provoked me into all of this um, was specific. I mean, I, I completely get. I mean, I, you know, Brexit is an absolute horror show. I get it. Um, uh, you know, no no complications in my in my feelings about that. But what I am where I am conflicted is when I hear Irish people speaking in very broad brush tones about the English, about England, as though the entire polity and its entire history is sort of utterly infected and, and um, you know, uh, by this and that this connects to all the other horrible things in, in the English past, the empire, et cetera. Um, and it, this tone, as I as I perceive it, it, it's not in sort of sorrow. It's almost there's almost a, a, a smug. There's a Schadenfreude of well, now they're you know now the chickens have come home to roost. That this stupid smug English nationalism is is um, bringing the United Kingdom in, into chaos. Um, and what I, I suppose what I don't quite get is the. Um, the sense that a lot of people seem, to, Irish people seem to be quite enjoying this. You know, to me, I look at it with just utter, utter horror. And you're, it's like seeing the house next door burning down. Um, but there seems to be a kind of enthusiasm um, uh, and a kind of, well, aren't we, aren't we cleverer than them sort of tone to a lot of the discourse. Is that just me or? It's just you, I think. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, to, to be fair, probably. Um, yeah, to be fair, probably some of the pronouncements over the last three years, you know, it does feel like a particularly stupid time in British politics. I mean, it is quite hard. Oh, it is. I mean, it, it you know, clearly it is. It is quite hard not to notice that. No, I, I, I absolutely agree with that, and that, and that needs to be noticed and, and spoken yeah. about. Um, I suppose what I'm, what I'm trying to put my finger on, maybe not very uh, um, accurately, is this sense that that this is anything, the sense that some some people in Ireland kind of are quite enjoying the spectacle of the English eating themselves in this way. I think there's more stuff like so. I think when people are doing that and their critique is about how the British teach themselves history, I think it's quite valid. So what you have at the moment is you have a situation. So I've done a, for my for my day job. I've done a lot of travelling around England talking to people. And, and I think most people have sensed this anyway, but I'm, I was getting confirmation every day that, that British people are taught nothing about Ireland in school. So there's a huge element of post-colonialism in both countries. They've got this sense that they don't need to learn anything about who they are because 
who they are is who they are. And, and what's fascinating to me is um, uh, me and Jennifer O'Connell, another Irish Times journalist, were talking about this on an Irish Times podcast earlier this week. When we were there a year ago, everyone we met knew nothing about Ireland. And like, in fact, you ended up having to explain to some people on the street that Southern Ireland wasn't part of the United Kingdom. Um, and that, it's like, to some degree, Brexit has taught them geography lessons. And I have had this experience this time, and so did Jennifer, that people are apologizing to me. And they never apologize on their behalf. They go, because they never talked about the border. Yeah. Because now they understand that there's, there's suddenly a, an understanding that there's a historical legacy there um, in the run-up to Brexit. And I, I, I don't feel smug about it. I do feel angry about that. Mm. And I don't have any apology for feeling angry about that. Because for all the amazing things I have got from England, there is a post-colonial legacy that they have never, ever dealt with on a kind of national level. There are still people turning up on Start the Week and BBC Four boasting about what a great emperor they had. You know, there's no sense in Britain, no common sense in Britain that the empire was a bad thing. And I, I don't think this is controversial in Ireland, but it is controversial in Britain, in England still, to say that the empire was a bad thing. Do you think, Patrick, though, that when you say that, that in a way what you have in your head is a very white English, usually male, upper middle class voice, whereas that, yeah. or is it, well, maybe not, maybe it's, but it's very, that's a very, when I look at England, I'm thinking this is an incredibly multiracial nation. And when I say London, English... Britain as a whole, if you drive around Britain, it's not all multi-racial. Okay, well, and, and it's not all upper class yeah. as well, because we, yeah. we know the, the whole mentality of British bulldog and street parties and stuff, which are the opposite end to the very hierarchical elite, um, also still believe the sun never sets on the British Empire and spreads at isolation and rule Britannia and all of that, which are very archaic and very sepia-tinted ways. And a, a lot of what has happened with Brexit and modern discourse in Britain in the last years, and particularly around Brexit, has come from this very sepia-tinted idea, this idea of an archaic kind of nationalism, that we were the greatest power in the world, we could be great again. It doesn't help when you've got the other, you know, tangerine moron on the other side of the Atlantic saying, make America great, which is the same kind of, you know, empire-type language. Yes, but that's... Um, it doesn't help. What it disguises is inequality, because, sorry for interrupting. No, go on, go on. Like, but the, most, the biggest, strongest sense I got from my reporting around Britain was that this is a place that has allowed poverty arise in ways that mm. Ireland actually doesn't have to the same extent. And you can see this in EU statistics. And an awful lot of the people who were really pro-Brexit that I met, the people who are going to, if you don't agree with Brexit, then the people are going to suffer most as a consequence of it. So the, so the post-colonial uh, British bulldog spirit is used to hide the fact that the upper class in Britain are hurting their own people, and they've been actively hurting them for 10 years of austerity. Okay, but I, wa I want to bring us back to, because obviously these are, we could talk for hours and hours and hours yeah. about the British Empire yeah. and uh, English nationalism and whatnot. I, I want to try to focus us on Irish, specifically, let's scrutinize ourselves a little bit on this. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned Donald Trump because you know, a, a very similar political crisis or political disaster has been unfolding in the United yeah. States over almost exactly the same sure. three or four years um, as, as the Brexit disaster. Irish people do not talk about America in the same way that they talk about England. 
It's utterly different. The I think they talk about him in the same way, though. Oh, sh yeah. no, but he, but that's my point, is, is the, the kind of discourse I'm hearing and that sounds odd to me isn't, oh, isn't Boris Johnson a, you know, so-and-so. Of course, absolutely, and Trump. Um, what, what I'm hearing is a blanket dismissal of England as a cultural and political entity um, that, that for which there is simply no parallel in the way people talk about America. Um, it just simply doesn't, it doesn't arise. And I, I say this as an American, if anything, I might be a little bit more sensitive to that. That's, that's I hear nothing of that. That's to do with geography and proximity as well, and the kind of two-way traffic that has existed between our countries. I mean, the largest single demographic group who are not Irish who live in Ireland are the British. The British. Yeah. Um, a, a huge number. It's a couple of hundred thousand. By a thousand. distance. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a lot. Um, and the fact that there's, I think it's one in six people in the UK are of Irish extraction. So there's an awful lot of, of symbiosis between the two mm. countries, which isn't, yes, the, the US and the UK have both taken in Irish immigrants in large numbers over the years, but America has always been over there and glamorous and different and, and also never owned us, never occupied us, didn't do that. So the two relationships are a lot to do with occupancy and territoriality. And that's where some of that comes from, the idea that we finally got rid of them, but they're still there. And Brexit is another way for them to politically cause us problems. So I don't feel that it's funny and I don't feel schadenfreude and I don't laugh about it because I'm thinking about all the people I know who work in perishable agricultural industries in Northern Ireland who are going to be finished if this actually comes about. So I don't find it funny at all. I find it, I, I kind of find the stupidity incomprehensible. Um, but I definitely don't find anything funny about it. I find it more disappointing that, you know, a country that has prided itself on being so much about parliament and sovereignty and the rule of law and all these things has got itself into this absolute whirlpool of, of chaos that I, that I don't think we've ever fucked up that bad in Ireland. I don't, maybe I'm wrong. But know, it's, it's not just about, like, that. Like, mm. like I don't think, I, I don't know if every Irish person has that view you're talking about. Mm. But also, like, I think an awful lot of Irish people have huge... Remember a few years ago, the Olympic opening ceremony, and there was a vision of Britishness there that I think yeah. most people in this room probably relate to. You know, this mm. inclusive, multicultural, open Britishness that was actively celebrating... Um, actively celebrating its unions and actively celebrating its NHS. And, and, and I think that that's an inclusive form of cultural outreach where other people can look at that and go, there's a place for me in that. Whereas the, the people, if, if you're talking about, say, people on Twitter kind of going on about the Brits or whatever, I think they're responding to a much narrower re re reprising form of Englishness. I think it's unfair to say that's what Englishness is, you know, because we, we know that's not what it is. It's just that's, that's the current iteration that's represented in Downing Street. And, and it's the current iteration that, like, Labour has to respond to. So it's, it's, it's what their body politic, it's the head of their body politic at the moment is dealing with those things. And does, Selena, maybe, maybe you um, have, have received something of what I'm perceiving. I hope I'm not the only person who's, I feel like there's a market um, for a particular kind of, um, and not just in Ireland, I think there's a, a, an international market for a particular kind of Irish response to this mm. crisis. The New York Times published a piece by Megan Nolan in the print edition, the piece was headlined, I didn't mind the English until now. Online, the same piece, changed I didn't hate the English until now. So that's the New York Times seeing a clickbait opportunity. I didn't mind the English until now. It's a pretty good, pretty fair summary of the piece Megan Nolan wrote. She did not use the word hate in the piece. Um, 
And then she had a little bit of trouble um, afterwards explaining that actually I don't hate the English. But then she kind of said, well, actually, I sort of do hate the English. <laughs> and uh, because I think she sensed what, what I'm sensing is that there is a market for this, and it's viewed as okay. And I don't know, I just think it's, it's a little bit odd. You know, how recent is the troubles? How recent is, you know... I think, I think one of the things that's kind of coming up implicitly or in the conversation is a profound unease with England becoming a nation-state. And there is an irony in that, because, of course, we became a nation-state in 1922. So it's a moment at which, if you like, England has existed for nearly 100 years of our sovereignty as a place of cosmopolitanism and a place where cosmopolitanism was, mo was modelled, by and large, successfully post-empire. It was a successful model of a multicultural society. I mean, pretty much through the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, I mean, compared to a very mono-ethnic Ireland, a very mono-ethnic nation-state, a nation-state that actually had its mono-ethnicity put into its constitution through defined on the female body and defined via the church and defined via the family. So that me meant it was very mono-ethnic. And so uh, for me, part of the crisis is actually seeing that model of cosmopolitanism, which is the one that had an avenue into it from, uh, for us as Irish. That avenue is now closing. Yeah. And we're beginning to see a reclamation of a kind of mono-ethnic nation-state. And that is profoundly, deeply, deeply unsettling for us as Irish people. Also because it calls us to question our own nation-state. So, I mean, I'm with Bloom, I believe. You know, I do not, I, I get uneasy at the point where nation intersects with state. I'm much happier with state. Mm -hmm than I am with nation. Uh, nation, for me, is a dangerous idea. Nationalism is a dangerous idea. It's there for co-option by liberal capitalist economic forces. I'm much happier with what a state does and the socialist model of state. And my great loss, I suppose, looking at England, is that where was that socialist model of state most beautifully articulated? It was in the creation of the NHS. It was in the, you know, an Iron Bevan. So that kind of sense of an extraordinary left social democrat view that arose was articulated there in terms of a coherent political ideology. In Ireland, we didn't have that articulated quite as loudly or as clearly you did. And I know there were, I know there were different strands, but the Labour Party was never yeah. the dominant force post-war or post-emergency in Ireland. So in a way, there's a loss as well of that whole, you, you know, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, it was what we saw on British television, on the news, were ideological struggles. It was Thatcherism against the miners. It was privatisation. It was the shutting down of British steel, It was as well as the troubles. So if you like that ideological sense that there was a really important political field where you could think and see thinking in force. That was missing from RTE News. That was there in terms of it was dominated by the troubles, but we didn't have those same 
discourses at, on, at six o'clock and at nine o'clock every night. So what I see when I look at the current Brexit crisis is, again, these kind of much broader debates that were around society being pushed into empty discursive formulations, and they're being pushed in there by effectively Vladimir Putin, who is controlling it, I'm afraid. That's my <laughs> conspiracy theory. But um, that, that sense in which... So that's, what I feel, that's where I feel the loss. I'm yeah. sorry, that's a bit of a soapbox. I, I, feel like, uh, I feel like it's kind of like Ireland is caught up with like, this kind of multicultural cosmopolitan. We do a lot wrong here, just by the way. I also think that. But it feels like the disappointment in Ireland is that suddenly nationalism is on the rise at the point when we were kind of getting quite comfortable yeah. being fuzzy Europeans. Yeah. Um, and, and the things you're talking about, like those were the things that attracted me to English culture when I was a teenager and a young adult. It was Britain was always amazing at counterculture. It was always amazing yeah. at Enemy was not just a music magazine. It told you who, you know, Marx was. And it yeah. told you, and people wrote British bands, even the Pet Shop Boys or the Smiths, you know, problematic as Morrissey is now, yeah. they could yeah. educate yeah. you about different things. Billy Bragg, sense, particularly as well. Billy yeah. Bragg, particularly. Yeah, all, all this stuff was there for the taking from Britain, and I felt like they were modelling a path to, to some degree. Um, I mean, I think there's things, Ireland has its own specific differences and problems, which is the other thing I've, I've kind of realised. Like I mean, I think what I've identified driving around Britain is how terribly the, the British class system has kind of infested that country. And, um, but we have our own class system that because it's slightly different in shape, I think our class system, we, did, we, we have the kind of hidden upper class that, that doesn't really talk anymore. And then there's a middle class and there's a, a working class and there's an underclass. Mm -hmm. And um, because it's not shaped like the British class system, Irish people fool themselves that it doesn't exist, whereas inequality exists here as well. Mm -hmm. um, so there's only, yeah, I'm running out of road. It's okay. <laughs> Sinead, your piece covers a lot of ground quite nimbly in a very short space. I wonder if you could read, um, starting on page 83, um, read those first four paragraphs yeah, of the piece, yeah. starting oh, there for there. My first encounter with England and the English was at a wedding in Liverpool, where my father's cousin was marrying a Liverpudlian Caribbean woman. I was eight, the only white flower girl, and I cried because my dress wasn't the same as the others, but everyone was very kind to me. Two emigrants stood up and said, I do, and then we headed to the reception venue, which was act accessed through a carpet showroom in Toxteth. There was reggae and Irish whiskey and plastic tablecloths. The surrounding streets were full of boarded up houses. Fingers of soot around windows were the last remnant of petrol bombs. As we walked the city, my mother told us about the previous year's riots. The next day, we went to mass in that famous cathedral, the one that looks like it's wearing a crown, and I was asked to bring up the offertory gifts. I duly handed over some priest's transubstantiation wafer to a priest and thought about what the boarded up houses meant. The Irish emigration tsunami of the 1950s had brought members of my family to Middlesex, Birmingham and Liverpool. Years later, obsessed with music, I realised that the parents of all the members of the Smiths had been part of this wave. My father used to connect an elaborate 10 metre cable to the stereo so I could listen to John Peel. The reception varied and it was sometimes hard to distinguish static from a napalm death song. 
Crouched by the speakers, I imagined myself into English cities, craving a life far away from Dublin. The summer I turned 18, I moved to London, navigating friends' floors and cheap flats, spending Saturday nights at the Slimelight Club in Angel while trying and failing to get a job. And because the IRA were still blowing up people and buildings, an Irish accent or passport was enough to invoke a could you step this way please miss request at English airports and questions about the purpose of the visit, where you were staying, how long you were staying for, but no one else asked about my Irishness. But lately, English people are more interested in this or the designation Irish. I've been asked for advice in obtaining an Irish passport and during a week in Sardinia, we met an English family whose children were a similar age to our own. By day, our kids hung out on giant inflatables in the pool, and at night, we wondered whether to have another glass of wine with these strangers who mostly wanted to talk about Brexit and were embarrassed about how little they knew about Ireland. I spent a lot of time in England this year, and this increased interest in Ireland, in us, has been noticeable. There's a new attentiveness to our history, even our language. There have been sad, frustrated conversations with Welsh and Scottish people who feel kindred these trips have also brought me into contact with many English men at literary festivals who loudly and enthusiastically tell me what they do or what they write about while not asking a single question of me. <laughs> this sort of thing is not new, of course, and not unique to England. But the lack of curiosity displayed by these narcissistic bulldozers seems to come from a sense of completeness, that everything they need to know is all around them and contained within England and Englishness. Thanks, Sinead. Um, lots of things strike me from that, uh, from that bit of your piece and the connections with things we've been talking about, I think, will be obvious. Um, but one, one slightly odd thought that, that strikes me is that while it's easy to hate the, and entirely justified, to hate the, um, the, the sort of men the overconfident men you describe um, meeting at literary festivals and in um, those kinds of contexts, um, and whose incuriosity about you seems, and I think this, this is very, con it's very convincing, your argument that it's linked to a sense of completeness, because national often, completeness. Because often when you're sharing a car, when you're, three of you are picked up from a train to go to a random festival in Scotland, I bring up Brexit all yeah. the time, yeah. and lots of them don't really want to talk about it, or they yeah. talk about how much it's going to affect them. And then as soon as I mention, I say Northern Ireland, and they shut up. Yeah. They don't know what to say. Yeah. But is there, is there an element where the well-meaning family in Sardinia, mm. who kind of feel really bad about all yeah, this, who and are asking you, curious, is there an element of that we slightly hate them even more? No, not at okay. all. I, I, okay. I, I felt that I think what has happened with, the, I think a lot of people that I think both Selena and Patrick have talked about as well, is there a lot of people, Brexit has been a, 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 an embarrassing, embarrassing wake-up call for people to, to realise and assess how little they actually know about Ireland, mm. Irish-English politics, the Anglo-Irish agreement, you know, the Good Friday agreement, how little they actually know and how it would, you know, and we know about Dominic Raab not having read the Good Friday agreement and all the rest of it. They, it, it there's... there's there's been a kind of a, a happiness to exist with not knowing or caring what has actually happened here and how complicated and painful it's been. And even the, I've talked a lot to people about the use of the word border. Border 
to use a very modern term, is a very triggering word to use to a lot of people still. And it's been bandied about on the news without actually thinking about the actual physicality of that border, who lives either side of it, and what will happen if there's a border, and if it's militarized, and what will happen again. It literally hasn't occurred to most of the people that I spoke to, and I've had lots of conversations this year. So it is about the idea that th that family were, were, were mortified. They were like, we're sorry, we don't yeah. know more. We, we feel really idiotic and we're not stupid people, and they weren't. Yeah. But they're also the education system was set up that, you know, you get a bit of famine, you get a bit of 1916, and there you go. That's it. That's yeah. the way it was. They don't know enough about the intricacies and the nuances, because politics and history, as you know, were very nuanced, and they got very broad brushstrokes, which is and not necessarily their fault. And do you, do you feel you got a good education in, in British history? And, Br and British sort of... Yeah, well, I, I studied history with, with English in college, but yeah... But we I mean, did primary here. and secondary. The, yeah, the yeah, I mean, think of it. You've got, you've, got it, you've got it all. You've got Whigs and Tories, and, okay, we got all Land League stuff, but, you know, you knew all the pre prime ministers, yeah. and you knew about the kind of intersection, and, again, of a lot of... Uh, as Selena said the other day, uh, when we were on the radio, talking about that a, a lot of... Um, people who were very involved in the advancement of the Irish cause were not necessarily the kind of people you'd think they'd be, i.e. Irish and nationalist, you know, people who spoke up for this country... Um, so, yeah, it's been complicated on both sides, but, but the lack of curiosity, which continues to this day, especially in the shadow of the last three years, and still amazes me and, and disappoints me, I think, more than anything. Um, on that, I had a... So, last Christmas, I've got a half-sister who I only... Um, she's a new half-sister. I mean, she's 10 years older than me, but we only discovered each other in, at, when I was 28. So she is, if I say her name is Antonia and she calls her children, um, they are Olivia, Rupert, Alexander and Tom. Um, uh, uh, I think that'll give you enough of a picture. Um, she wasn't christened Antonia, she was christened Hazel, but uh, that, went to, that went to Antonia pretty quick. Um, so Antonia um, very kindly invited us all to her house and she's great. Um, and we played this game where you put the names of historical people in the hat and you pick one out and you have to describe who it is without giving various details, right? So I was there with my son, um, who's, uh, who was then 13. And I was, you know, and everyone's, scrim you know, putting their little bits of paper in the hat with their names on it and it's fine. And then you draw, you draw the name and you have to act it out. So, I was kind of thrilled when my half-brother-in-law, my brother-in-law, Graham, pulled out, uh, pulled out and went, Podrick Pierce. <laughs> and um, if, you, if you can't do that name, you can put it straight back. So he put it straight back, right? So um, I thought, okay. So that was a dud. That came from my son. Um, that's fine. Um, and then I pulled Ken Livingston. No, yeah, I pulled. No, he pulled Ken. He pulled Ken Livingston out instead of Fordrick Pierce. And in his description of who Ken Livingston was, he kept saying leader of the Labour Party. And I went through Michael Foote. I went through as many as I could think of. You know, I'd had what the guy Taylor, John Taylor. I had a whole load of guys who, I mean, they're all guys uh, who who had died. And finally, he said, no, how could you not get this? It's Ken Livingston. I said, he's the leader of the GLC. He was never leader of the Labour Party. So we ended up having this row about English history. I just thought it was this extraordinary moment where there was no regret for no, not knowing who Podrick Pierce was. Yeah. 
But he absolutely expected me to know who Ken Livingston was. Even though he was giving you false information. He was giving me false information. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's, there's an asymmetry. Yeah. There's a continuous yeah. asymmetry of information because we consume all their media yep. and read all their papers. Yep. And we see their television and they don't see any yeah. of the stuff that's just us. Yeah. And I, like it, it's a very, very strange thing when you end up talking about Irish politics in England to English people because you actually start feeling like you need to give them a class yeah. because there's a complete, like never mind Irish culture or the vagaries of Irish culture, we've all seen like the British sitcoms, we've all heard the British pop songs, they have no idea about the cultural side of things unless they're academics. Except Dania. <laughs> or you too, I mean they know, they know the kind of big stuff but again literally yeah there's so many tiny and even again I mean I, I it was, it was only this year, a, a writer that I really like, an, a, an English writer, who you would know, was doing like a fake Irish accent around me. And again, it was just like, really? Yeah, yeah when I toured yeah. England for the first time as a band years and years ago, like the thing I couldn't get over, like I was probably in my mid-twenties, is you'd pull into a place and you'd meet the promoter and they'd all be kind of hip left-wing people. And they'd go, oh, yes, Jesus. <laughs> they'd do like an Irish accent because yeah. they thought we found our own accents funny. Yeah. Like, there's, I find that, like, and when you were talking about hate, I don't think anyone on this panel hates the English. And I don't think most Irish people hate the English. We do hate the same old shite coming up again yeah. and again. And, and Brexit is, is the new iteration of that. And I think that it's self damaging. I think it's about classism in Britain. I think it's about. Colo the colonial past that they haven't dealt with or felt like they need to deal with. And that's, I don't blame individual English people for not knowing these things. Like, it does get wearing. But I do blame their system, that, that, that the they feel no need to deal with this stuff. Yeah. Sinead Gleeson is the busiest person in Dublin, possibly the busiest person in, in Ireland, and she has another engagement this evening. So, Sinead, you're free to go at any time you have to go. I'm not saying you have to leg it. I don't know. I'd love to hear it. I'm not trying to get rid of you. So if you read now, then I can run away. Okay. Yes. Selena, will you read? Well, thank you, Sinead. Will you read the part two of your... Okay. And actually, it dovetails nicely with what Sinead read, because we were obviously all going off to London when we were 18. Um, I was 17 in this case. So in the late 80s, I went to London to work for a summer. You couldn't hope to gain experience in Dublin. On that, my parents were agreed. A group of engineering students had colonised a series of squats around Manor House in Hackney. At 17, I shared a mattress on the 16th floor of a, of a tower block scheduled for demolition with a mate who worked the sites. I soon found work as a shop girl in a gold warehouse off Hatton Gardens. The business was cash only and there was no till. The notes went straight into a plastic bin beneath the counter. Out the back, the owners did a lively trade in counterfeit Lacoste. My second week there, I was told we'd be opening up on Sunday. My fellow assistant, Andy, looked nervous as he buzzed me in, and I was about to ask why, when a gunman jumped out from behind the potted plant, followed by another. Their every line, lie down on the floor, don't do anything stupid and you won't get hurt, seemed taken from Starsky and Hutch. When the police arrived and learned where I came from, how recently I'd been taken on, and exactly where I was living, I briefly became a person of interest. 
A few days previously, an IRA bomb at the Mill End Barracks a few miles away had killed a soldier. Under interrogation, the niceties of my identity counted for very little until Andy was asked for till receipts to quantify the stolen cash. These, naturally, he could not provide, and suspicion turned towards the owner and his innovative idea to open up his wholesale business on an August bank holiday weekend. That summer taught me that I could be unambiguously Irish in England. It also taught me I was white. I discovered what racial privilege meant the first day a temping agency sent me to work for an insurance firm. A recruitment ad for sales reps had been placed in the Evening Standard. When potential applicants rang in, my task was to persuade them to attend a presentation the following day without letting it slip that this was commission-only work. My boss advised, if they can talk, that's great. Asians are fine, but no one buys insurance from a black. I rang the agency to seek advice and was told firmly to do the job required. Every man who called, and it was only men, asked me whether a basic salary was provided. Forbidden to answer them, I listened, unable to distinguish one English voice from another, and so invited in anyone who was prepared to stay on the line and talk. The next day, I glanced in through the glass wall during the presentation and saw that I had failed. At lunchtime, I was let go, my name immediately dropped from the books of the Temping Agency. Thanks, Selena. Um, yeah, what... Um, you've got to go. You're going to miss the lightning round. Um, <laughs> You're going to miss the wine. Sinead, but we'll, we'll, we'll get you later. Thank you so much. Um, uh, thanks, Selena. I'm going to sit up. Are we, are we, going, to, are we going to merge? Okay. It just feels very distant. Yeah. <laughs> Great. This is a strange chair. It's this Sinead. <laughs> oh. It's getting very informal. It's getting very informal now, yeah. This is, this is the kind of borderline chaos that I was hoping for with Dublin Review conversations. Um, uh, so much in that piece, and um, maybe this is just me being odd again, but um, what I love... What I love about editing the Dublin Review, really, is that I can commission writers like Selena and Patrick and Sinead to write, to write about things um, where, unlike almost every other context um, in which we write about current affairs, um, it's possible to, to come at it slant, and you've all done it brilliantly. Um, I suppose, again, what, what that segment brings us back to is, is the question of um, race and the Irish and our relationship and, uh, you know, we've all been talking about um, England as the multicultural entity, Ireland as for a very long time the almost entirely monocultural entity, um, although with all kinds of interesting subcultures, um, and how that's changed. And we've just come through by-elections um, in which, and the most recent presidential election in which we've seen candidates um, trying on um, xenophobia in ways that um, I think are fairly new in Irish politics, and it's debatable how, how successful they've been. Um, 
Yeah, I, I suppose one of the things that I was thinking about when I was writing that piece was that, um, yeah, well, there were lots of things going on, but one of them was thinking about how, in many ways, justifiably, and I'm going to tread on sacred ground here and probably get electrocuted, but um, <laughs> how there is a narrative of persecution um, that we have grown quite comfortable with as um, Irish nationals, but sometimes that prevents us from examining a narrative of privilege. Um, and that is what I wanted to look at, I suppose. Um, um, and, yeah. It, it, that that job taught you that you were white in the sense that it yeah. simply didn't arise in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, also, there were no jobs in Ireland in 1988. Um, so, I mean, England was always a land of opportunity. Sure. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, but it, it, as I say, yeah, you, I mean, it was so white that you kind of tended to feel that you knew the black people around town. Yeah. Um, and that was it. And I'm using that term advisedly because it was the term of the time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I wanted to think about that. And uh, Rennie Edo Lodge wrote a great book during the year, which is why I no longer talk to white people about race. And I thought, yeah, this is the time when I need to actually educate myself properly in a proper language um, of multiculturalism, which means, you know, sitting down during the year and going back and reading all of James Baldwin, which wasn't part of my education, um, and deciding that this is what I need to educate myself on. I mean, I'd read Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man and other things, but I needed to immerse myself in that. So, yeah, I wanted to say that that was now something that I could actually do, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the other way I've been thinking about this is because I mentioned my half-sister, and there was a large chunk that had to go for reasons of economy. But um, I have my Irish half-sister, who's very English, um, only discovered, as she was saying to me last night on the phone, it was quite a shock to discover at the age of... Um, she must have been in her 30s when she discovered that she wasn't actually just English from Hampshire, but she was actually half Irish and half Mexican. And um, so uh, this has turned out to be quite a bonus in Brexit times because she's applied for and received yep. an Irish passport and all of Antonia, Olivia, Rupert and Tom will now travel Europe on Irish passports too. Um, um, welcome. But, welcome to all. Yeah, absolutely. But my, my, my sister-in-law is Peruvian and she uh, has lived in London for nine years and she is busy going through hell trying to prove yeah. that she has the right to remain in the country where she has lived for nine years, and I was thinking in a way, it's an extraordinary injustice yeah. that my English half-sister can get Irish citizenship so easy, so easily and so inexpensively by a factor of birth, yep. whereas actually having spent so long, nine years giving her best to London, mm -hmm. my Peruvian sister-in-law is denied nationality, or well, she may, she's not necessarily denied nationality, but she is... Her, her, her citizenship is in question. in question. And I thought there's, that's a terrible inequity. Yeah. Um, so that's where I was feeling that injustice. Yeah. Well, that's... As Don't believe in birth, right, I think. Yeah. 
Well, that's, as we've, we've discussed separately, that's a whole other piece that I hope Celine Sorry, will I write. Sorry, I pardon, but yeah, um, yeah. But very germane, very germane to this discussion. Um, Patrick, do you want to say anything before we move to the lightning Just, round? Um, I find it really interesting that like, we wrote kind of personal pieces for this, and uh, me and Sinead in particular went down a road of political anger. Yeah. It's because, and, and if you're talking about the, the victimhood thing, like I don't think Ireland, Irish people Irish people are, white Irish people are in a position of privilege in the modern world. So I think what a lot of has been happening has been a kind of weird, it's when the other person in a relationship doesn't see you. That's, yeah. what it, that's where a lot of the anger kind of comes from now. And in some ways it's privileged anger. It's the anger of one privileged European country with another privileged European sure. country. Um, it's just there's other roots there. Of course. But I'm not usually this angry. <laughs> You're, you're a very gentle anger yeah. person, Patrick. Um, I'm really sorry Sinead isn't here for this bit, but um, I, I'm not interested in exactly where you stand on United Ireland. I'm simply going to ask you, having observed Brexit, <laughs> having observed the past three and a half years um, since the Brexit referendum, um, and uh, seeing as we've all seen that um, suddenly people are talking about the prospect of United Ireland, which is something that would also require not one but two referenda um, to come about. Um, do you feel more or less positively inclined towards United Ireland than you did before the Brexit referendum? Selena. Jesus, thanks. <laughs> um, uh, I'm married to a man from Belfast. Yep. Um, uh, United Ireland. I'm the wrong generation. I'm not asking where you are on the on the to on the leave spectrum. and look at that. I'm uh, just asking which direction has the dial moved for you. I don't think the dial has moved at all. Okay, the dial is. I, I think the, the dial, dial is, is stationary. Static. I think the dial is static. Is any movement, Patrick? Yeah. Uh, the 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 South needs to do an awful lot of work. Like we're talking about, um, as you painted very well earlier. Like we were, a kind of monocultural theocracy for a long time that that was that had huge problems with um, Protestants in the north and all these uh, it would take an awful lot of cultural work before I'd be comfortable I mean the mm -hmm. dial has moved more positively purely because it's moved so negatively in another way like things were working quite well with the Good Friday Agreement, mm -hmm. and now it feels like another solution is necessary, or may be necessary. We'll see what, we'll see what happens. Um, but I don't think, the South, like, there's a lot of complacency in the south of Ireland, and I think what you put your finger on is the danger that we become even more complacent, that because across the water seems like such a political shit show that we yeah. think that we're great, mm -hmm. and when there's an awful lot of problems we need to deal with here. Not just the complacency, I mean, obviously complacency is something yeah. one needs to worry about, but also, just the practicality we've seen with Brexit, how blood, how much of a bloody mess comes from you have a referendum, uh, yeah. in or out, uh, or United Ireland, or you know United Ireland, and, and yeah. utter chaos ensues. Um, I'd have thought that would make people think about about the two we, referenda we, we would do United Ireland, and yet there is a yeah, lot. Yeah, I think that's actually a really important point. I think. Actually, the great the point of smugness I have is saying to my half-sister, and um, 
Yeah, well, you see, we didn't just have a referendum, and we didn't ask a polling question in our referendum. We have incredibly long referendums. We have to read down three pages to the end of the legislation before you're allowed to tick the box, yes or no. So you don't ask an opinion poll, like, do you want a united Ireland? You don't ask that kind of question. <laughs> you, How do you not ask? In the end of the day, there will only you be... You ask the chapter and verse, and also you have the Citizens' Assembly, which was yeah, extraordinary. You need you know? to have concessions. There's a huge community up there that aren't okay with it. So you need to have, you need to have a long political process. Mm. So I, and I don't think any party, except maybe Sinn Féin, would, would want to do what you've just described. I think most parties and most people in the South would want to have a process. Mm. Um, and I think that we'd need to, in that process, stop being complacent. We'd need to accept certain things about incorporating uh, unionist identity into the Irish identity that, that we have, for a long time in the South, because of our partitionist mentality in the South, we've gone, that's their problem. But actually, if it becomes a united Ireland at any point, we have to incorporate uh, a, another culture into our culture and be welcoming to that. And I don't know if we're doing any of that thinking in the South because we prefer to think of it as Britain's problem or the North's problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only way I can see that uh, those referenda ever happening is after that process, yeah. after a long, yeah. many years of debate, I hope. Well, it's up to the Northern Ireland Secretary to launch, uh, yeah. to launch a referendum process. So we may, <laughs> we may be looking at a at process than we might wish for um, with our lovely um, citizens' assemblies and, and whatnot. But we shall, we shall see. Selena, will you have the last word or will you have a no, glass of wine? I'll have a glass of wine. A glass of wine, Thank okay. Yeah. <laughs> Going upstairs, anyone who'd like a glass of wine, please come upstairs and we can keep chatting. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Dublin Review podcast. The Dublin Review is published quarterly in Dublin, Ireland, and is supported by the Arts Council of Ireland. You can subscribe to the Dublin Review at thedublinreview.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Dublin Review.